0: Uh, if you look back at New Testament churches, you can uh, falsely assume that, they, that those were the good old days. When you read the book of Acts, uh, and you see that after Pentecost, uh, the, the, basically the gospel of Christ was unstoppable. I mean, thousands of Jewish people were turning to Christ as the Messiah. Uh, thousands being baptized constantly. It, it, it's, it's like, wow, that must have been something to be part of. And I'm sure, sure it was. Um, the gospel exploded, I mean, all over the known world. So that, uh, the first command that Christ gave the church uh was in acts chapter 1 verse 8 to go out and be his witnesses uh and to start where you were uh and, uh your jerusalem and to go out there to your Judea, samaria the next geographical zone out and then to the uttermost part of the world to be his witness the w- word witness in uh, greek is martus sounds a lot like martyr uh to be willing to die for the gospel of christ uh, and so when you look at how the gospel went out from chapter 2 forward in the book of acts it's like man it was unbelievable uh, but that might be a false appraisal of the time. Because when you understand, uh, as the gospel went out, uh, the devil uh, never sleeps. and He constantly works to oppose the gospel. And so when you read uh, the letters of the New Testament, uh, Paul's letters, uh, you could pick one. Uh, any of uh, Peter's letters, uh, you know, letter to Jude that he wrote to the church. Uh, you get a different view of the church uh, years later. Uh, and you see that there was uh, much uh, internal and external issues within churches. Uh, The devil would attack externally. You see that in the book of Acts, external attacks, um, typically from Jewish people, also from uh, uh, politicians in the Roman Empire. But you also find the most insidious form of attacks came from the inside. Uh, Those were the toughest to deal with. And after pastoring a church for, I don't know, you start losing track after a while. I think it's been about 33, 34 years. Uh, I would say those are the most difficult to deal with. Uh, And we'll talk about why in just a second. But when you look at the, the church, I give you a bird's-eye view, and this all pertains to the book of 1 John, because we have to uh, paint a foundation as to why do you write this book? You have to understand uh, the, the, what the Germans would call the Zitzemleben, or the setting of the book, to understand the import of the book. Um, what was going on in the church? Well, uh, after the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, you find uh, there, all this opposition. Uh, when you read the book of Romans, we already studied Romans, spent several years going through the book of Romans, uh, where Paul talks about uh, the importance of the justification by faith alone. And the reason why he waxed eloquent on that is because uh, Judaizers had infiltrated the church and were teaching a different kind of gospel. In their gospel, uh, they were Jews who came to Jesus, uh, and they believed that you have to trust Jesus as your Messiah, but you also have to uh, adhere to the Mosaic law, the Torah. So faith plus works. Paul castigated them uh, from chapters, uh, well, really the first chapter, but big time chapter two forward. Um, talking about the, that a believer is justified by faith plus nothing. Your faith in Christ saves. And he talks about that all throughout the book. Um, so there was opposition even in the church in Rome. Um, Galatians, the book of Galatians, written around 48 AD, which was one year before the Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15, which was around 49 uh, AD. Uh, Paul, being a wise, skilled shepherd, uh, took uh, these Galatian churches to task Uh, Because they were entertaining a false gospel. And when you read the first chapter of the book of Galatians, he gets in their face for teaching false doctrine. Uh, And he even says, if anybody teaches you um, uh, a gospel that's different than the one that I've taught, even if they say an angel gave it to them, he says, let them be anathema, which in Greek is cursed. Strong language. uh, Because so much was at stake in that church. So they're fighting over doctrine. Um, The book of Ephesians. uh, Here Paul confronts saints... Uh, at this most uh, prestigious church in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, located on the Keister River, which is now not there anymore because of sedimentation. used to be an inland port, Um, huge amphitheater there. Uh, Amazing city. We'll talk more about it in just a minute. Um, But in the the Church to the Letter of Ephesians, uh, Paul, in chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, uh, gives command after command, telling Christians uh, what kind of sin they needed to stop engaging in. And he he takes, if you read it, 425 to 32 Ephesians, uh, he takes a, a, a negative, a no in Greek, and he weds it to a present tense command. And when you do that, you're forbidding an action in progress. And you do this if you're a parent. If, if the child's doing something, you tell them, you better stop doing that, right? And if you don't want him to do something, you tell them, you better not even think about doing that. But Greek had an exact way of saying that. So Paul is telling them, uh, your, your behavior, such as lying, deceiving, giving place to the devil, Um, all the things he talks to them about. He's talking to Christians who are engaged in sin. Uh, And he's telling them, this is going to destroy your church. It's going to destroy your Christian walk. So move away from that. And then he says in verses uh, 430 and following of Ephesians, your sin is grieving the spirit of God whom you're sealed by until the day of redemption. He can't leave you, which is why I believe in eternal security. Because if he could leave, he'd leave. But he's not leaving. So there's problems in Ephesus. Uh, uh, The church in Colossae, Colossae, Colossians church, was about 10 miles south of Laodicea in Asia Minor. Uh, and bear in mind, 1 John is, is written to the churches in Asia Minor. And Colossae was one of those churches uh, that totally knew uh, the contents of 1 John. Uh, the Colossian church had its own issues because what happened in that church is they took, uh, they took uh, Juda- Judaizers, salvation by faith in Jesus, plus oh, obedience to the Torah, uh, and they wedded it to Oriental Gnosticism, uh, Gnostic teaching. Uh, Gnosis gnosis, uh, is the Greek word for knowledge, and they meant esoteric knowledge. So you have your Christians, and you have your uber-Christians, the ones who are like super into what God wants you to do, and it's secret stuff that we know. And so uh, they developed this uh, new brand of theology that infiltrated that uh, church, uh, and Paul in the book of Galatians takes them to task. Isn't it fun being a pastor? (laughs) I would say if you feel like you're being called to ministry, it's not simple, uh, because you had to stand for truth in a truthless world, that always believes the next progressive thing is the new thing and the true thing, uh, and you are there to say, no, truth does not change. And we stand for the gospel of Christ. This is Paul. And so the book of Colossians, uh, Paul takes them to task in chapters 2, 1 through uh, verses 23 to tell them if anybody tells you you got to be saved by faith in Jesus plus maintain perpetual works, that teaching is not from God. It's not the gospel. It's a, it's a great book. But what is Gnosticism? Because Gnosticism, as we're going to see as we study First John uh, is the background to the book of First John. In Colossians, uh, that book is, is actually addressing it. Uh, uh, John's just addressing it later. Uh, so we could call this uh, a, a Gnostic overview. So I, want, I have a chart. What would a sermon be without a chart about Gnosticism? It's kind of like a taxonomy. Uh, could we see the chart on the overview of Gnosticism? Is it up there? There, there you go. So uh, overview of Gnostic thinking. Now Gnostic means what? To, to have knowledge, to have inside knowledge. So in Gnostic, in Gnostic thinking, you had an unnamed father, i.e. God. Uh, he was perfect, he was all and mighty, etc. He was totally unapproachable by humans uh, because he was so holy. Uh, and because he was so great and lifted up, in order for him to get down to mankind's level, uh, where they believed that dualistic concept of the world, that the world was con- uh, dualistic in the sense that matter was evil, but your interior man, your soul, was, was that which was holy. So therefore, it meant that, well, on the world level, since they had a dualistic view of the world, which they are, they're going to have, the people of 1 John, dualistic view of the world means, well, it doesn't really matter what I do to my body, because it's just evil. What matters is what goes on inside me, in my mind and in my heart. So therefore, I can do with whatever I want with my body. It led to that total license, uh, which uh, you're going to find is, is, is addressed in the book of 1 John, or it led to asceticism. Well, if the, if the body is evil and the interior is good, then I must cut myself off from all things so I'm not tainted by the body. Uh, but in, in order for God to reach out to mankind and save him, um, they, they created these aeons, these uh, emanations or uh, mediators between God and man, typically looked at as angels. Uh, and each one that is created, so each one of those little bubbles could, could be a God. And every time a God was created by God, the unnamed Father, he was a little bit less like God. And when he finally got down to the last one that had a little bit of deity about him, but, but not much, so that particular deity could then reach out to mankind, that was Jesus. That's exactly what 1 John's going to address, that kind of thinking. So you go from what is known in Greek as, ple- I know it's early in the morning to be studying this. Yeah, I was up at <laughs> 5.30 doing this. So, so Roma and the Greek word means fullness. Uh, Kenoma, emptiness. So it talks about in the book of uh, Philippians where it says, and Jesus emptied himself. That's called the kenosis. You know, what did he empty himself of? Um, and so they say he emptied himself of, well, deity, so that when he finally got down to our level, he was man and a little tiny bit God. Uh, true or false theology? False. false, false. But it was the progressive thinking of the day and you either were into the progressive thinking and accepted by everybody in the culture and in the church or you held the, the doctrines of who Jesus was and is as the full son of God and the full, full man of God. Uh, then you're going to be ostracized and castigated because you don't fit in with society. Sound familiar? And so uh, I would say these kinds of attacks that attacked the early church uh, were insidious. There were two ways that the devil attacked. Uh, his uh, methodology was external attacks. If that didn't work, then I infiltrated the church and had internal attacks. Internal attacks, and I'll eventually get to First John. Uh, the internal attacks are the most difficult to deal with. Uh, two reasons I'll give you from my pastoral experience. Number one, internal attacks on a church are typically difficult because you don't expect them. Why? They're Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. I've known them forever. I baptized their kids. I led some of them to Christ. I've been there when they've been in the hospital, blah, 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 blah. When they, and I've had them turn on me. When they turn on you for all kinds of reasons, um, it's extremely emotionally distressing. You did not anticipate it. Uh, the other thing is, uh, when you have somebody that's inside the church, and it's typically somebody that you know, Not in it, I mean, if somebody came in here that we didn't know and started espousing false doctrine, we'd immediately go, we need to go to another church. I mean, that ain't happening here. You know, we, we need to protect the church. I mean, you, shouldn't you, you need to turn to Christ. I mean, we, we'd be all of them, right? right? But when they come in and it's your friend, and you've known them, and you've been at base camp together, and you've been in women's studies together, and they flip theologically on you, it's like... It's tough. It's shocking. I've watched it. This is what happened uh, in the churches in Asia Minor that John is going to write to. Those people began to flip to false theology of the day. And there's old man John. He's around 84 years old telling them, you need to move away from that. Um, Dissension and disruption always come when people embrace false theology, masquerading as true theology. Um, In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we'll eventually cover all three of those books, uh, over the next year, uh, he, he addresses those who had cleverly articulated doctrines uh, that were basically uh, false doctrines that went against the old time doctrines of who Jesus was and his person and work. So if you, if you look at uh, uh, John chapter uh, 2, verses 18 to 19, um, you, you will read there, if you look in your Bible, you will, you will read that they had, the, the attacks that came from inside the church split the churches. They split these churches. That's the devil's goal, to split a church. Because if you split a church, it loses its power in the community. Who's going to want to go there? They, they'll, the community will say, well, they have the same issues there that we have at my office, etc. These are all things I've heard before, so uh, I'm not making them up. Um, so the, the churches that split, uh, and a lot of the people in, uh, in the First John, in these churches in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, had left uh, in a doctrinal huff. They were all upset. You know, they, got, they left the church, and they took people with them. And as we're going to see as we study uh, First John, um, especially uh, chapter 2, verse 26, uh, they had left the church, these teachers, and they were still teaching anybody that was still in the church to try to lure them away from, why would you want to go to that church? I mean, that church that holds on to the old-timey doctrines and stuff. Why would you want to do that? And so they were luring people away. In steps John, a godly pastor uh, who says, uh, I need to take this conflict on, and I need to deal with it, because it's not from God, it's from the devil." and it's gonna destroy the churches. Um, so uh, here, here we have old man John stepping in where friendships are frayed, sometimes forever. People have left church saying they're never gonna come back, uh, and it was a mess. And uh, chances are, he founded the Ephesian church. Uh, most painful for him to watch that happen. So with all that background in mind, that was my introduction to the introduction. You still with me? <laughs> we, we need to get ask some fundamental questions. Number one, what are the introductory questions uh, that we need to consider about the book. And there's many, we'll cover the big ones. Introductory questions that we need to know as we study the book. Number one, who's the author? Uh, we can make this very short and move on. We're not, it's not gonna happen. Uh, who's the author? John, excellent. Uh, how do we know that? Uh, because of, uh, 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 because of uh, internal and external lines of evidence. Uh, so we wanna look at uh, that concept to know, well, how do we know John wrote this book? Because if you read First John, he's not mentioned. He doesn't say like Paul. I Paul write this to the Ephesians. He doesn't say that. So how do we know? How do we know First John wrote it? Well, we look at internal evidence. We look at external evidence. So let's look at, uh, and I'm just going to give you a bird's eye view of internal evidence. So um, another chart. So if you look at, uh, uh, you with me? Can you can you see this? You thought you were coming to church to relax. Think again. Uh, you came here to think to learn how to follow God. So uh, so if you look at this uh, chart uh, that I put together, uh, you can see. The words that John uses, like darkness, truth, commandment, abide, etc., and you do a, a language analysis, which I did this week, you will see that First John uses those motifs, and those are direct uh, derivatives of the same words used in the Gospel of John. Therefore, since John typically talks like this, he must have wrote this book. Like the word abide is a huge book of First John. Um, you can see it, it, is, it, it goes all through the, book, the Gospel of John. And so, uh, therefore, that internal evidence shows you that this is probably the, the, the man that wrote the book. Uh, what words do I like? Some of you have made fun of me before about words I like. What words do I like? How would you go, t- Marty, totally wrote that. Truth. True? Truth. 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 What else? Too funny? Thank, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> this could be painful for me. What, what else do I say a lot? What? Amazing. I do use the word landscape a lot. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, see, you're already, ah, wow, this is unbelievable. So, so you could totally tell if it was for me, right? Yeah. And so, so we know John wrote this because it is the same language. And that's just a few words. There are many words that, are, that show John, First John is linked with the Gospel of John. So let's move on. Um, that's internal evidence. But how about external evidence? Uh, external evidence, well, if you study the, the church fathers uh, who came right after the apostles, so if you study like Irenaeus, uh, uh, who was the bishop of uh, Lyons, which was in France, or if you study uh, Dionysius of Alexandria, um, or Tertullian, these are all around uh, late 1st century, uh, early 2nd century. Uh, they will verify, uh, John wrote that. I'll read you uh, one uh, a clip from uh, Irenaeus' uh, Against Heresies. Uh, this is chapter 3, uh, uh, section 16, verse 5, in case you're really studious and want to know. Um, but what did Irenaeus say? And who, who's Irenaeus? He's the bishop of where? Lions? No, that's Dionysius. He's, n- no, no, he was bishop of uh, Lyons in France. Dionysius was in Alexandria. Um, so he, when he, when he, see, we argue in church too. It's just <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so, when, so when we read his writings, like, what did he say? Now, who is Irenaeus other than being a bishop? He was a disciple of John or a, poly- a Polycarp who was a disciple of John. You see, the close relationship. I mean, they were that close to guys that walked with Jesus. Here's what he says. It says, the gospel, therefore, uh, knew no other man but him who was of a Mary, who also suffered, and, and no Christ who flew away from Jesus before the Passion, which is what they, they taught in Gnostic thinking, that, that the true Christ fled away from, you know, Jesus when he's being crucified. Uh, but him who was born, uh, it, it knew as Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and that is the same suffered and rose again as John the disciple of the Lord verifies saying, quote, he's gonna quote from 1 John, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have eternal life in his name, unquote. He just quoted First John. He says, foreseeing these blasphemous systems which divide the Lord as far as lies in their power, saying that he was formed of two different substances, uh, for this reason also he has thus testified to us in his epistle, quote, i going to quote John again, little children, it is the last time, as you have heard, that many antichrists uh, doth come, um, now we have many antichrists have appeared, whereby we know that it's the last time. They went out from us, but they weren't from us. For if they'd been from us, they would have continued with us. But since they departed, they made it manifest that they're not from us. Who's he quoting? He's quoting 1 John, Irenaeus, who is uh, you know, a disciple of, you know, and, and friend of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. He's quoting. It. He didn't give you the chapter or verse, but he quotes the thing verbatim. So who wrote First John? Internal evidence and external evidence says, it was John, so you guys were all right. <laughs> where was it written? Where was it written? Much debate on where it was written. Uh, Zane Hodges, uh, who's one of my favorite Greek professors when I was at Dallas Seminary, great man of God, now is with the Lord. Uh, I take issue with him here because Dr. Hodges says that he thinks that the book was written in Jerusalem. Uh, I don't. Uh, I think the book was written in Ephesus. Uh, and I think that because of the following lines of evidence. Uh, number one, Eusebius, the church historian, around uh, 3 A, 3rd, 3rd century AD, um, says that uh, John was buried in Ephesus, that, that key city in Asia Minor. Uh, also, he, remember he was Bishop of Lyons in, in France as well. So uh, he says, and I quote, he says, John, the disciple of the Lord, published the gospel while living at Ephesus. So he says that. So he's in close proximity to the time of John. That's what he said. I remember uh, he was also... Uh, It's closely associated with Polycarp, who is the bishop of Smyrna, which is one of the seven churches that John writes to in the book of Revelation. So these these men all knew each other because of close proximity to the churches. Um, uh, Also, uh, when you look at this book, uh, you will see that uh, there's a a strong correlation between the the language that John uses uh, and what appears in the book of Revelation. So um, I, I don't know if I have a chart on this or not. If there's a chart on the name of Christ, probably not. Um, if you do, I did another study this week. Uh, is there a similarity between uh, what John wrote in 1 John and what John wrote in the book of Revelation? Because we know John wrote Revelation. Uh, the answer is yes. Because John's going to use the same kind of terminology in Revelation chapters 2 to 3, messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor, that he uses in 1 John. A case in point, he talks about my name. Uh, uh, in Greek, it's toonoma, ono, to my name. Uh, So in Revelation 2-3, when he addresses the church in Ephesus, the church which I think he founded, he he talks about the name, my name, the name of Christ. Uh, Same kind of terminology. Uh, In in Revelation chapter 2-4, when he talks to the Ephesians church and he tells them that they left their first love, he's going to castigate them for that. Jesus is going to castigate them. Um, John uses uh, the word love, agape, uh, similar. Um, Poyao means to do something. It's a big word on being obedient. Uh, You find that. Uh, in Revelation 2-5, that the Ephesian church was an obedient church where it came to doctrine, but it came to loving Christ internally. Now they love doctrine and and making people see they were right more than they love Jesus. So he castigates them for that. So he uses the same Greek word to perform or to do things that you should do. It's poieo. It's the same terminology. So you see a strong correlation uh, in the the book of uh, Revelation, the seven messages to the churches, which we've studied in our Revelation Bible study on Sunday nights. And by the way, we have class tonight. Uh, and we're in chapter 21, we're going to get into the, uh, the whole revelation of heaven. It's awesome. So if you've missed the entire last 20 chapters, you, you can still come and benefit as we study uh, the doctrine of heaven as disclosed in Revelation uh, chapter um, 21. Uh, but John, it, what I'm trying to tell you is John, where it's written from is Ephesus, and he's writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor. It's what he's doing. Uh, and, he's, and he's doing this uh, to, to call them away from false teaching and back to true teaching. It's the same thing he would be telling us today. In our world awash in all kinds of false systems masquerading as truth, the pastor, the Bible teacher, the, your disciple, or whoever is close to you should be calling you away from false teaching that's masquerading as truth and back to true teaching. Uh, and that's what he did. So if you go through the se- seven messages to the churches of which John is addressing in 1 John, because 1 John is like a, a, it's like a polemic. It's like an apologetic, as we see. He's pushing back against false doctrine. So, Ephesian church, great church, church he probably founded, known for being a great teaching church. What's the weakness of a great teaching church? They're really smart. What's the weakness of a teaching church? Do they really love Jesus? Yeah. And when I left the Ph.D. program in Hebrew when I was 27 at Dallas Seminary, um, so, so I tested into that program, wasn't going to start that. Uh, in my last semester working uh, on I, I had an exegetical class on the book of revelation with dr harold honer um and so i was i, I had to exegete uh, the church's message to ephesus and you know i was doing my typical greek analysis of the passage um and i got down to that part you know but you don't love me anymore it's like god just hit me bam he's like marty you did your college degree you did your four-year master's degree in, well, I was in a Greek major. I took six years of Greek, and then I switched to Hebrew and got my master's in Hebrew. But, but he said, you've done all of that. All that was for me, but I think the PhD is for you. Oh, ever, God ever talked to you like that? And you're like, whoa, Lord, I think you're right. And so I said, well, what do you want me to do? Well, you can see I'm not a professor right now because I had seen what the devil could take your ardent study of the word of God and flip it against you. It's what happened in Ephesus? And so he, he castigates them for not loving Christ like they should. Um, he also goes against uh, Pergamum, Pergamum uh, was, had its share of false teachers. And 1 John, and John is writing against them. Uh, they're, engage, they're getting people in the church to engage, engage in all kinds of immoral activity. And, and they're substituting it. You know? Well, if we need to accept anything and everything as, as a sexual possibility. And that was Pergamum. And so John is writing against them to tell them, flee from immorality. So if you go down through the seven uh, messages to the seven churches, you will see um, John's first letter is grammatically and linguistically using the same language to call them away from falsity and back to a true faith and walking closely with Jesus. Because false doctrine, false teaching, destroys your walk with God. You follow? This is huge. And so uh, Laodicean church, the last message that uh, the Lord gives as the high priest to the Laodicean church, he tells them basically, you're not a hot church, you're not a cold church, you're just a lukewarm church. When it comes to doctrines, sera sera, you don't care. He says, therefore, if you do not repent, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth as a church. And John's writing to them. And you can see in 1 John, this 84-year-old man, he's passionate about truth. And so, when you look at this book, 1 John, keep in mind the messages to the churches of Asia Minor in Revelations 2-3. to John is writing to them. He's just writing years before the fact, about 15 years before the fact, because do, false teaching and false doctrine is very insidious. It they don't come in with a giant placard going, hey, I'm Bill, and I'm, there. I'm for false teaching. They don't do that. They don't talk like that either, but if they did, you'd be going, man, stay, steer clear of that dude. Call the pastoral staff. They need to totally castigate that guy, approach that, confront him, right? No, they don't come in that way. They come in in an insidious way. They get, they get enmeshed inside the church and get to build friendships and stuff. Uh, and next thing you know, they're espousing false doctrine. Um, the, the same, same uh, world in which we live. And so we are much in the similar situation uh, that when John wrote this letter around 80 AD, uh, w- the timing of the letter, to when he wrote the revelation, uh, you're talking 15 years. And in that 15 years, the churches went south. And the sad thing is, those churches don't even exist anymore. That's the scary part. Because remember, Christ told them, if you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand. So uh, the Lord is really big on following sound doctrine and following the commands and dictates to uh, live as you should. So why was the book written? So we want to look at quickly before we close as to why it was written. So uh, th- there's much discussion as to uh, why it was written. And um, I want to read you 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Because I used to be of this, this mindset year, years ago when I was a young man. But I had issues with it. But I didn't know how to think through my issues with said position. Uh, so 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Some say this is... This is the theme of the entire book. So follow me on this. What's he, how does he close his book out? These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that, it's a, it's, a, it's a purpose clause, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Some people take that, as I used to when I was younger, in my 20s, I used to apply that to the entire book. When you do that, what happens is, um, and that particular phrase there uh, is a prepositional phrase, these things, these um, when you take that and you apply that in the entire book, then do you, do you, in my estimation, wrongly assume that he wrote the book to tell the Christians in all of those churches, "You're Christians, huh?" That seems like a, that seems illogical to me. But everybody says that, you know. And it's like, well, that's that's why he wrote the book. Uh, I, I don't agree with that position anymore because uh, of word usage. So that particular uh, prepositional phrase, these things, um, it occurs here. And it only occur- occurs in that uh, first person uh, uh, singular mode one other time in, in the book of John. Uh, that's in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, where he uses it there as well. And when he uses it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, these things, he's referring to what he just said, not the whole book. So therefore, if that's how he uses the term, why in the world would I get it to the end of the book and say, he ipso facto takes that prepositional phrase and it applies to the whole book when that's not how he uses the phrase see if i believe the whole book is written that you can prove whether a person's a christian or not then i will read the book through that lens and assume everything it says about that is is about that concept well they're a believer because of this and they're not a believer because of that that's how you read the book that leads to huge issues as we will see when we get into the study remember we're studying first john this is introduction so so what's the book about uh a couple other things, uh, the concept of these things uh, is also used uh, in chapter five, verse 13 in a different little bit grammatical change. And again, uh, in those contexts, like of course, uh, John chapter five, verse 13, uh, he's really talking about the things that I just told you. Not, not the book, but the things I just taught you is what I'm talking about, about who Jesus is, his person and his work. That's the stuff I told you about. And if you know the stuff I just talked about concerning who Jesus is, then you know you have eternal life. He's not talking about the whole book. So what's he talking about in this book? Uh, here's, this is important, because this will color our entire thinking. Uh, in this particular book, in my view, uh, he, is, he is writing to talk about fellowship with God, intimacy with Jesus, which is impacted by sin. Okay, can a Christian sin? Why are you so quiet now? And he's going to probe into my life. Yeah, I had to probe into my life. So is it possible for a Christian to, to engage in carnal activity? Oh, absolutely. If they didn't, I would lose my job. I mean, it's because it's, they do. And when they do, uh, you have to call them lovingly to come back to Christ, to repent of their sin. You know, it's, you, know you have positional sanctification that, that allows you to get into heaven when God sees you. Boom, you have the righteousness of Christ. The problem is your daily walk. Because okay? you have a self-will. And so I think what's, what's happening in this particular book Uh, is John in the very introduction tells you why he's writing his book. And he's writing about maintaining fellowship with Jesus in a society built on false doctrines and false teaching, masquerading as truth, and if you get sucked into those false systems, it's going to destroy your intimacy intimacy with Jesus. You have to stop and ask yourself, am I believing anything right now that's contrary to sound doctrine, that is totally nailing my faith, and it's causing my intimacy with Jesus not to be as stellar as it once was? You need 1 John. Notice what he says in the First John chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we, speaking of disciples, uh, have held, our hands have held concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us in the person of Jesus. What we have seen and what we have heard, we, the disciples, proclaim to you. Why? Notice the why, he tells you why. Uh, The purpose clause is that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. What joy? Well, we know you're saved, but we know false doctrine has split your churches. And there's not great fellowship anymore between you and each other, because false teaching puts saints against saints. And he says that you've lost that fellowship And because you've lost that love and joy with each other, you've, by definition, lost that love and joy with Jesus. But I want you to get back to that. And so he says in uh, this book, let me write about how to maintain a deep, abiding walk with Christ. A deep fellowship. That even as the culture goes south, your church doesn't and your faith doesn't because you're in love with each other because you're in love with him. This is a great book. Everything he says is going to be built around the concept of maintaining that abiding relationship. I don't know, I mean, the older I get, the more I think about it. Am I just learning things about God or am I walking with Him? See, am I getting smarter in the faith, but am I obeying what I know? Because I know when I stand before Him, He's not going to want to know how many books were in the Old Testament. What about those participles? Can you, you think He's going to ask me that? What's He going to want to know? How hard did you follow me? Was your heart in it? Did you do it for the right reasons? Did you obey my commands? Did you love your brother as you love yourself, etc.? That's what he's going to be looking at. Did you stay true to sound doctrine, which led to sound living? Uh, I'm excited about this book because I think it's perfect for the day in which we live. We live in the same kind of culture where false taxonomies of false teachings are all throughout the culture and they're infiltrating churches and destroying them. I would say the greatest hope of our nation is the church of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for the power of the gospel. It changes a person's relationship with you for eternity because we are now covered by the blood of Christ. It uh, changes a group of people that form themselves into a church because they are covered by the the blood of Christ and they are empowered by the spirit of God uh, to be the church, to be your hands and feet uh, to each other, to the culture. And they are there also to share the gospel with those lost in falsity. May we learn much as we study this book. May we grow deep in our relationships with each other. Deeper in our relationship with you. And may we repent of any of those things that mar those relationships. And we'll give you the glory as we do great things in your name uh, to lead many people into the kingdom of Christ. And with that in mind, Lord, we pray. Amen.